Thank you, everyone. It's so great to be back. I've been a member of Orchard Grove since pretty much the early days in 2001. And I've been back and forth. My company relocated me. And it's great to have retired and be back in Michigan. So I want to take you back to 2007. And as Pastor Chris said, we were a fast-growing church. We had a very big local outreach program, but we didn't have an international presence. And Chris had a vision that, like he said, he wanted to really focus on one part of the world. And he had a particular interest in Africa, because as I'll show you, HIV and AIDS was running rampant in the continent of Africa. And so he asked a couple of us to go off independently and research. He didn't want to start from the ground up. He wanted to find a partner who was already making it happen on the ground. And we both came back, and independently, we came back to the same organization, and that was World Vision. Now, World Vision happened to be putting on a pastor's vision trip right then, and they invited us along with about 20 other pastors and churches from around the United States. And it was important to them to show us what they were doing. So one of the things that we learned about when we were there was World Vision has a major focus on addressing poverty locally. And they have about six key areas that they focus on when they are going in to try to build up an or, or a local community. And it really is the people that they have working in these areas in order to get themselves out of poverty. But in Africa, it was different. Because in Africa, HIV and AIDS impacted all of this. In fact, some of you who are my age or older may know that back in the mid-80s was when HIV and AIDS ground zero happened in Africa. And you can see, the chart's a little fuzzy, but you can see the red highlighted areas. That's over a 15-year time frame when AIDS just started running rampant in this part of the world. In fact, of all of the cases of HIV and AIDS, infections and deaths, 70% of them occurred in Africa. And that was impacting things like life expectancy. So here's some countries that are in sub-Saharan Africa, the poorest countries of Africa. And around the mid-80s, Life expectancy was around 60 years old. Ours was around 80, but theirs was 60. But look what happened in a 20-year time frame. It plummeted down to about 40, 45 years old in these countries because of HIV and AIDS. And who was it impacting? It was impacting the income producers. It was, income, it was parents. It was mothers and fathers. And what it was doing was leaving orphans in the country, in these countries. And these orphans were being um, abandoned or being cared for by villages. And so World Vision took us to not just understand the facts and what was happening, but they took us to a country called Malawi. Never been to Malawi, but we had the most amazing host, Abusa Kawamba. Pastor Bright, who got to show us what World Vision was doing on the ground floor. And we did things like went to a school. 
And the school had a thousand children in this elementary school. Ten classrooms, do the math. Classroom was no bigger than your kids' classrooms. So we saw the kind of resources that they had to deal with. Not only that, World Vision was bringing in curriculum because they knew that in order to fight HIV and AIDS, it was going to take this young generation. It was going to have to change a whole generation mindset and culture. So we actually saw a school assembly. And these were children as young as eight years old teaching their classmates about the impact of premature sex, let's call it, and what would happen to them in their culture. So these children were putting on an assembly, and they knew that the consequences were extreme in their country because it could end in death. And that's not a fable. That's not a fable. It's not a story. It happened and came to life to us at the household of probably the most impactful visit that we had. And that was the household of Peter. Peter was an orphan-headed household. Now I challenge you, the next time you do your taxes, go look in what category you check off. You will not see orphan-headed household. Orphan-headed household, he was an orphan because he was actually the same age as my son at the time. He was about uh, mid-teens. His father and his mother had both passed away within a year. And he was left as not only brother, but now father to four children, the youngest of whom was less than a year old. And Peter raised these children himself. In fact, when we were hearing about the life in a day of Peter, the three oldest children you see, they would have to get off to elementary school. Peter would make sure they got ready. The baby stayed at home, alone, cared for by the village. Peter was one of the lucky few that got to go off to secondary school. And that was very rare in his community. He had to walk seven kilometers, about four, four and a half miles there and back. Make sure that the kids were fed. This is the family home, by the way. Typical of a family home, a little bit dilapidated, thatched roof. No such thing as running water, bathrooms. Here's the kitchen. They had corn 365 days a year. In fact, he'd tell us about his rare pleasures. And one of his favorites was having meat, like three times a year, on Easter, I recall. But the funny thing was, was at the end of this visit, Peter was laughing with us. He was joyful. He had, he had a heart filled for God. In fact, at the end, he said to us, I am thankful to God for the blessings I have. And I will tell you, at that time I left in tears because I knew there was a young boy who had more faith in his poverty than I had in my privilege. 
And I walked away and knew we had to do something for the community of Sinzani. And thankfully, Pastor Chris felt the same way. And we came back, and we started a program called um, an initiative here called Adopt a Village. And we worked with World Vision, and we wanted to only focus on the children in Sinzani. And so we had a goal of, in the next six months, let's adopt or sponsor 100 children in that area. We had our first Adoptive Village Sunday where we explained to the congregation such as yourselves the types of things that we saw. By Monday morning, I was calling World Vision and said, we need more children. We had sponsored over 100 children the first Sunday. By one year anniversary, we'd sponsored 280 children. And at the height of our program, we were nearly 400 children that we had sponsored out of this Orchard Grove community in Sanzani. We didn't just stop with sponsorships, though. We wanted to make sure that we had a partnership with the leadership over in Sinzani. In fact, we'd gone there about four times over the next six, seven years. And I remember we assembled 100 HIV kits for the AIDS caregivers over there, and we sent them over. We found out at one point that two of our children had died of malaria. So we made sure that every single adoptive village child from Orchard Grove had mosquito nets in their house. And when we went over to uh, Sinzani, Pastor Chris and Pastor Bright actually put on two years in a row pastor's conferences because those pastors did not get a lot of continuing education, and that was really enriched them as well. But every time I went over, I would come back, and the number one question that was asked of me was, are we really making a difference? And I will tell you, progress is slow in Africa, but this is my child, the first little girl I met. Her name is Pimpero. She was five years old when I met her. Scared little thing. Her mother's name is Emily, and I sponsored her because Emily is a single mom like I was. But I knew in the area of Sinzani, this single's, single mother's life was hard. And she had to provide not only the income, but the care for her children. And over the years, I got to see Pimpero grow up. You know, you sponsor children and you see their little photos and you never know, are they really real? <laughs> and I got to see her grow up over that 10 years. Little Pimpero got to go to secondary school. She's there now. She's actually 15 years old. In the area of Sinzani, there were 10,000 children. 250 got to go to secondary school. That's our high school. 250. Both Pimpero and her sister, Sidikana, were able to go. They had to have the means, which this program helped them get, and they had to have the smarts, and those kids focused on school and education. In fact, her favorite subject is English. Think of that. She would write me in English, beautiful letters, beautiful penmanship. I got to bring my son over, and they knew who he was a school teacher, and her goal is to become a school teacher. 
we made a difference in the lives of children. The family of Peter. Peter had no income, no income potential. He would do a couple chores and make a few coins. Peter, with the help of this program, started with one goat and then more goats, and those goats were able to sustain the family, meat, milk, and an income that he could now provide for his family. Peter got to go to truck driver school. Bright will tell you that every young boy in Sinzani, here the goal is to become a doctor, there it was to become a truck driver. Peter got to go to truck driver school. <laughs> and Peter rebuilt the family home by hand with sun-dried bricks, and we got to see it. That young man married the girl in the choir, the church choir, and the last time we visited, he told me he made me a grandmom. <laughs> and the Sinzani community. So when we first went to Sinzani and when World Vision went to Sinzani, Pastor Bright said that their incidence of HIV and AIDS in this very rural area of Malawi was around 18 to 20 percent. The last time we visited in 2011, it was between eight and nine percent. I can tell you, we did help make a difference in the community of Sinzani. I would especially like to thank Pastor Bright and Pastor Chris for their vision. and for their dedication to Adoptive Village. And I know that we not only changed lives over in Africa, but for people like me, you changed my life as well. Thank you. Laura, I asked her to just stay and just we could chat a little bit about um, what we did there. But I, I want you to know that it is kind of interesting because Laura's just, uh, I say just, but I mean, you know, like, like in James when it says, you know, Elisha, he prayed. He was a man just like us. So, and yet Elisha accomplished so much. And, and Laura is just like any one of you. She's not a pastor. She works, worked for Volkswagen for many, many years and served Volkswagen faithfully. And I just said, Laura, can you take this project on? And literally, she did it from the ground up. And I uh, thank you for your dedication. And by the way, um, my first job as a pastor over there was just collecting her tears and getting everyone corralled from one place to the next because you can't, as a mom, as a human being, you can't see the, uh, I'm going to use the word injustice uh, and, and not be affected by it. Um, and so last week, Laura, I talked in our, our, our service about justice and um, in a part of your presentation, it says some people say it's charity, other yeah. people say it's, it's justice. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think... It's important to think of it this way in terms of fairness. And we were talking last week about, you know, a level house or versus a slanted house. And the idea of justice is just trying to jack up the house so everyone has a fair chance. And what we saw yeah. is, oh my goodness, if these guys had a fair chance, their dedication and work ethic is yeah, yeah. beyond. And, and the cool thing was um, it didn't take a lot. I mean, sometimes it was what I pay for five lattes, you know, and these guys were buying 
bags of food and, and Goliath, one of the pictures you saw, his first pair of tennis shoes, he was 10 years old. He never had a pair of tennis shoes. And it, and it didn't take a lot. And it was so wonderful and rewarding to just see that the little amount and dedication that we could do, how much they could do with it. Yeah. yeah. And you couldn't help but think of, wow, um, if you put that much hard work in, if they just had a chance, right. you know, wow. Right. Um, right. One of, one of my friends who attends here said to me, and I love this, he said to me uh, about a month ago, and he, he said, Chris, when you did that whole program, I love this. He goes, I, I was a cynic. He goes, we got enough problems right here. We don't need to be, we, we heard that, didn't we hear that a lot? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yep. and yep. I should say a couple of things, and I think Laura would agree. It's not an either or for us. It is no, in no way an either or. You help Africa and you don't help Detroit or Flint or, you know, or right here in commerce, right? Yeah. It's not an either or. Yeah. Um, but he, he, he went on a family trip to Africa and he <laughs> came back and he goes, I get it. Uh, and, and so sometimes it just takes that, that real exposure. Uh, yeah, to yeah get absolutely. It. And I would say the first time our eyes, you, you've been to places like India. I never had. I mean, the most poverty I had seen was Pittsburgh. So now that's our, bleak. I got a friend there. <laughs> our eyes were wide open after this, and your heart is so open, and you could not help but have had your whole life changed by that experience. And everyone who went over there, their yeah. lives were changed forever. Yeah. And I became a servant. Yeah, yeah. After that, yeah. It, it just my heart was open to these children yeah. and the all the work that needed yeah. to be done yeah. there. And there was nothing there that said, oh, just, we want to lay around, just take care of us. There was, it was the complete opposite. It was just, give me any sort of a scrap and I'll make something of it. Yeah, you know and they didn't, they didn't ask for anything either. No. That, that was the thing. Yeah. Nobody ever asked for anything. The family yeah. of Peter, I, I mean, honestly, if I were him, I would have asked for a little handout. He knew that we were from America. Never. Yeah. There was no. never, ever So much grace. Any, yeah. yeah. They had yeah. so much humility. In fact, I remember coming back and actually wishing that my heart was that big mm. and my faith was that big and my life was that simple mm. and uncomplicated that I could worship God like they did. It was, mm. it was actually beautiful. Yeah. No, yeah. and there's, there are some rich biblical uh, truths in there about... You know, it, uh, in James, it talks about, he says, isn't it the poor among you who are rich in faith? Look that up on your scriptures. Why is it that the poor can be rich in faith? Because maybe our first in- instinct is to rely on our resources. Our first instinct is to rely on ourself. And their first instinct is to rely on, on God. God. Yeah, and so yeah. faith kind of becomes strong there. And that was a common thing. I mean, yeah. I think everyone that goes, when you say, Laura, they come back and think, I want that kind of faith. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Laura, I want to talk about, oh, if you were here last week again, I'm, I want to follow up from, we're talking about justice. And so I talked about justice. If a house is slanted, justice is the jack, right? That brings up the end of the house that's unfair or slanted against you. And if you've never had the li- life slanted against you, you don't get this. So you're just going to have to wait your turn. <laughs> but at some point, you find something in life, and you're like, that's just not right. It's not fair. So I was trying to think of ways that we jacked up the other end of the house, and I was thinking of the grain banks specifically. And my education 
around the grain bank, and they took us one year into a grain bank, mm-hmm. and they explained to us that how the farmers are able to get a hold of their own. Can you can you elaborate on that? You yeah. Know, like how they were, the farmers were able to take control of the timing of their... Right, right. So when crops would only come at one certain time of the year, there would be, um, you know, you would have plenty, and then you would have not when they were depleted because they would rot and, and all of that. So they created these grain banks so that the farmers could actually store their grain, their crops, their meal, and then that would be kind of a little uh, system where people could come and actually purchase from them throughout the year. And the and it crops gave those, were stored. It gave those poorer farmers some economic leverage, yeah. I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, if you're a poor farmer, you didn't have anywhere to store it, so you had to sell it right then when prices were cheap, and so you were caught in a cycle. Right. So what you guys did by giving and supporting those kids, they were all community projects. They, they put their resources together, and they put this grain bank, and now this poor farmer had a little more leverage against the big guys, and it just gave them a leg up. It were things like that yeah, that I yeah. felt like were so... And Laura you know, has worked in business for years, and she can appreciate this. This wasn't guys just running down the street throwing money. I mean, this was an educated, thoughtful, strategic... Uh, I remember the time... They took us way back in the hills, <laughs> and the road stopped. Um, I mean, these trips are made for boys. I call myself a boy because that's pretty much yeah. what I am. But and they made, put us in skirts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're riding in the back of the pickup trucks and through the fields, and then they stop, and then you start walking, and we're walking and walking. And we get out into th- these fields, and they had a retention pond up yep. in this. Remember this? Yep. Absolutely. And we're waiting there and waiting there, and all of a sudden this guy gets up and he's got a ragged and torn suit coat, right? <laughs> but proudly Proud. puts on his suit coat. And finally, they gather everyone, they start the presentation, and they're explaining to us, right, yeah. what this retention area does for this farmer, that it only produced this much um, at Yes. For so many years, and I, I would do bad on the math. But now, because of this retention area, this guy went from absolute poverty to a self-empowered farmer. Right. right? And he could irrigate the farm with some PVC pipe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that, was, that was the engineering marvel yeah. for them. Yeah. And it was amazing. We went, and it's they that together. basic. And they collaborated. And, yeah. Yep. And then it would, it would divert it from one farmer to the next farmer to the next farmer. And it was... It was a marvel. And here we were, what you, would, what you would say is the middle of nowhere, right? And here's Laura, like, uh, uh, again, a business person for years, and hearing this guy talk about succession planning, right? And, that, I mean, literally, we're in the train. I'm looking at Laura, and I'm like, the, what you think when you look at these pictures, you're thinking, oh, these poor people. No, 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 no. They were being taught. They were being trained. This was not about a hand up. Right? This was about just give me a jack. Just let me jack this house up and I will make something. It yeah. was, wasn't it? Yeah. I think it was stunning in that way. Um, I was thinking of the bridge. You had a picture of the bridge in there. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. That they could get across this river. Right. Because we people, go across bridges all the time. But Oh, yeah. There were right. people on one side of the river 
that had nothing. They couldn't get water, they couldn't get food, they couldn't get, it was because of the river and the river would flood and they would die if they crossed it. So this bridge enabled a whole part of Sinzani to actually now get, World Vision was able to come over and put wells there and then they could actually now start to sustain life for the people on that side of the river. And the wells, to me, there's another jack, right? There was another jack to build the house up because one of the things we got so educated on was the girls and the, the girls. lack of education. Yeah. So talk about that, Laura, yeah. a little bit. So it, it was made known to me, and, and I truly saw this, that if you educate a girl, you have now educated a family because it was the women who would orchestrate everything around the families. And those girls, when they got their education, they would start to have a voice, and they wouldn't be as oppressed, and they wouldn't be as um, taken advantage of. I mean, let's just face it, the spread of that disease was partly because these girls in this economy did not have a voice. And now they could stand up and fend for themselves and with that education become teachers and become doctors and now be more productive chance, members of just society. Just a chance to go to school. Oh, because you're, yes. you know, you, you know what this is like. If you've ever, if you've, your, your water's ever stopped working at any point here and all of a sudden your life comes to a screeching halt, right? Like if you've had, a, uh, a while ago we had the bad water boil over here and in my house it was affected by, you come to a screeching halt. So you can't use your, you can't use your water. So they would have to walk, right? Yeah, However miles. far it is, miles and miles. Yeah. So it's hours of their day. Bright, am I, am I doing this correctly? I'm going to have Bright come here in a minute. Um, but they're in the, they, they carried they the carry, water. I tried it. It is not. That's like 50 pounds on your head. And, and they walk like this. On their heads. And they oh learn how to God. walk And there's like a baby this. on their back. A baby and, on their back. Right. And, and they're usually one of the young female children in the household. And so instead of going to school, they spend the majority of their day just getting water. Yeah. It's not that they aren't smart. And if you give them a well within a reasonable walking distance... You jacked up their house. Now they can get the water within an hour instead of within three hours, go to school and educate themselves. And everyone will tell you, Bright will tell you, if you educate the women, look out. Things are going to change. No, it's just true. If you educate the women, things are going to change. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why Laura had a big passion and uh, I, I couldn't... Um, I remember, Chris, and it's just a tiny story. There was my moment, and I don't know if you had a moment when you were over there and said, we have to do something. But remember protocol, and mm. after every visit, <laughs> they would talk, we would talk, World Vision would talk, the chiefs would talk. It's very and, structured. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a headmaster, and she had a nursery school. And she got up, and she was a grandmother, and she had a baby on her back, and she said, I want to ask you three questions. She said, why are you here in Africa? And somebody answered, why are you here at my little school? Somebody tried to answer. And in the meantime, just let me know, we're taking pictures. Her kids were gorgeous. There's a hundred little kids all singing, um, I want to be a little teapot, whatever that song is, <laughs> in Chichewa, okay? I mean, it, they were gorgeous. We're just raptured by these kids just Perfect attention, a hundred of them. Her last question, 
Are you just here to look at the flowers? And I will tell you, the cameras went down. Again, I lost it and said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to help? Yeah. And that was my that was moment. Your moment. Yeah, sure. Um, I want to ask Pastor Bright to come up here. Pastor Bright, will you come up here? Bright, uh, I think this is... My education started with Bright. Bright, take a seat here uh, if you can. And uh, we're going to share communion together. But my education started with, and and ours started with Pastor Bright teaching us about HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. And we were there for, he taught us for about two days, a conference, and knows more about that subject than I could ever dream to begin to know about. It's so intense and complicated and and all of that. But I want to bring out one point, and it's going to lead us to next week. Um, one of the problems, one of the problems that the, the, the nation or, the, or the, the continent of Africa faced with the HIV uh, crisis was ignorance coming from leadership. Yeah. People being taught by their pastors that these people were and bright fill in some of the blanks here these were bad people and god was judging them and, and that hiv ideally was god's wrath on people who this are this is the common narrative people who are immoral yeah and we excuse me we had a challenge really to change the mindset of the church leaders because they were preaching it from the pulpit that if anyone has hiv and it's actually god's way of you no know, uh punching you. So the church, instead of just opening our arms and grabbing these people and these orphans yes. and all that, they were just saying, well... So we, we, we had what we called Channels of Hope. So Channels of Hope was a special program, World Vision, uh, put together, and it was led by a man who was a survivor of HIV. Yeah. Um, and he went, long story short, he went, went through Channels of Hope, and Channels of Hope had a Actually, a structured program of changing the mindset of church leaders. Mm-hmm. And so our challenge, because I was a Christian commitments manager responsible for church relations, so I was dealing with church leaders countrywide and speaking to them and changing their mindset. The church is not out to you know, uh, condemn. Actually condemn the people that are con- I mean, HIV, you know, victims. I was saying, why there are you may talk about someone who is immoral, but think about um, an, an honest, faithful woman who contracted HIV AIDS. Talk about children who contracted HIV AIDS because the mother was HIV, had, had HIV. Now, are those, is, that, is that God really doing it? Mm. Does the Bible really reflect that kind of God who is so insensitive? Mm. And um, that was a challenge. At first, of course, we did first challenges because some people had still structured, you know, mm-hmm. their theology mm-hmm. is that, you know, there's a, a God who's so full of wrath and wants to kill people, particularly those who are immoral. But then, this structured program, which we called Channels of Hope, slowly, gradually, you know, the church leaders began to change their not their sermons only, but it changed their hearts yeah. and their approach. And uh, the church became an asset of God, uh, an asset really in Cezanne because yeah. they, were, they took up the first front of embracing those that are, you know. And, and what I've learned, right, so true, yeah. the, uh, I've uh, met and become friends with the guy who uh, began the Channels of Hope yes, as yes, well. Yes, and uh, 
phenomenal human being. But here's the thing. What, 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 what they realized, think about this, that uh, the key to changing everything was changing the mindsets of the leaders. Exactly. And if you're in Africa, exactly. the pastors are the leaders. Exactly. Point blank, period. In, They're in, the leaders. In fact, let me also add that in Africa, in Malawi particularly, you know, a, a church pastor is more powerful than a politician. Uh, the church pastor has his, the, his constituency, the church, that is, that meets every Sunday. And meets something in Africa. You also, we also meet daily sometimes. There's a strange you know? phenomenon that, like, in Africa. They, exactly. they do so, what their pastor says. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, 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 and let me also add that you no know, pastors are revered, really, uh, to the point that when I came here with Annie, and um, I see you know church, you know, church members are calling, hey Chris, Chris, Chris. I'm saying. In Africa, we don't call the pastor by his first name. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Bright told me, he said, you don't, even, you don't even talk to your pastor with your hand in your pocket. That's just, Actually, do, just, do, but, you, you can't. I, I wouldn't can't talk do to that. my pastor like this. No, yeah. no. no. <laughs> this posture, no. You understand that. Straighten now. it up, people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, what I'd like to, what I'd like to do is we're going we're gonna to share a communion together. We're going to pick up a conversation next week with Bright because I want you to see something. You know, Bright has a vision and an opportunity to go. He's been here for 10 years, over 10 years, to go and not just start an Orchard Grove campus and a church, but to start a leadership movement. Um, we're sending him with books. We're getting him an iPad. We're going to send him so many books he's going to be able to. The first thing when Bright, when we talked about going back, is he's like, my books, my books. I have to get my books back. And think about this. If we can load up his iPad and load up a library where co- people can come and learn and get exposed to, right, Bright? That was yes, the big thing sure. with the leaders, get them exposed to something richer. We have a chance um, to, to change a, a nation, ri- literally. And, uh, and by the way, if you don't know this, um, Bright's pretty well known in Malawi, right? He's very well known. You go anywhere in Malawi and this guy's your ticket. This is your all-access pass in Malawi, right? <laughs> And, I mean, literally, you think about this, the opportunity that this church has. And so um, I'm saying that as a, as a little bit of a teaser commercial for next week because it's very important what we're going to be doing next week. Um, but I want to thank Laura for the hard, hard work that she put in to make this possible for our church family. Thank you, Laura. Stay here, stay.